You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with the heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. We probably got the most um, famous parable, uh, the one that everybody's heard preached uh, multiple, multiple times. So what am I going to add to what you already know is probably the mystery here, uh, if there is a mystery. Let's begin with prayer. Lord God, thank you for your word and for the way it does penetrate, even when it's become familiar to us. We thank you, Lord, that you um, taught in parables and stories that kind of overlay our lives today in ways that get us really thinking about our relationship with you. I pray that you'd bless this time. I thank you for the worship that we've come from or are going to and ask that this time, too, might be blessed by your Holy Spirit. In the name of Christ, we pray to the glory of the Father. Amen. Well, it's Luke 15, 1 through 32 on your study sheet. Most of it in the first and second part column are are all about Scripture. And so why don't I read this uh, with comment? Have any of you seen the movie A Star is Born? You haven't seen it, but there's been a lot of talk about it, right, Uh, in the media. Bradley Cooper was being interviewed about uh, the movie, and he said, uh, my aim was to make an epic movie by telling an intimate story. An epic movie with an intimate story. And in some respects, that's how I see the parables. The epic is the gospel, but the parables are right down to earth. They're person to person. Uh, You can visualize the dynamic. And so you've got this uh, meta-narrative of salvation history, this epic story of the gospel, but played out in a very intimate way. Uh, In a way, parables are a little bit like going to the movies. Uh, I think there's a, a, a kind of an artistic, cinematic way of looking at um, these stories that Jesus told. So let's begin. 15.1. Uh, now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Remember, we've been saying right along that parables are a way, in a sense, for Jesus to communicate indirectly. The story itself was not in any way kind of offensive or necessarily provocative. He was able to tell the story, even if the meaning was quite provocative. So it depended on the listener and how they heard it. Now, you've got two groups of people here, the tax collectors and sinners, and you have the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. There is a third group, always in the environment of Jesus' teaching. And who would that be? The third group. You've got the tax collectors and the sinners. You've got the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. But who else would be the third element in that listening group? Yeah, the disciples. that band of uh, followers of Jesus. So there's three groups, and there's going to be three identities in this parable. So maybe keep that in mind. Uh, 
the tax collectors and the sinners are all gathered around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers are muttering. And again, that's so typical of any kind of audience to the gospel. The mutterers and the hearers. And uh, so Jesus tells a parable. Suppose one of you had a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I've found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Now, I think that would be a crowd pleaser in the company of tax collectors and sinners. This idea, yeah, there may be a place for me. Jesus has just said there's more rejoicing over my coming than uh, all the, the 99 righteous persons who don't need to repent. We could spend our whole time on that, but I think these first few parables are a prelude to the big one. Verse 8, or suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I've found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there's rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. Now, you probably have heard in messages how outlandish this request was. It is, as Tim Keller said, to wish that your father was dead. You're calling for the inheritance before it's due. You're saying, in effect, I don't want to live in your presence I just want what you have to give me. An audacious request in any cultural setting. It's a transcultural offense. So he divided his property between them. He does it, though. He doesn't just say, no, get the out of my office. Um, he does it. And this, this is one of the aspects of the parable that I find uh, challenging for us in the 21st century. To what extent does this parable impact and model parenting in the church for the sake of the gospel? You realize that many prodigals we send off to college fully funded. We almost anticipate the prodigalness of their experience. It should cause us maybe to, to wonder a bit on that. Have we institutionalized prodigalness? Also interesting here is that the son has to leave because we have many prodigals who stay home. But somehow the father's will and the father's law was such that this guy had to get out. He couldn't stay. 
You know, this creates a lot of dynamic that would be worth discussing, thinking through. Um, there is a clarity about this break with the rebellious son that I think is helpful and necessary, important in how we would parent. No question of the father's love at all, but there is a question of the father's culture within that home environment that is is really significant and really important. So he divided his property between them. Any thoughts or questions you have on that particular aspect if I already provoked? You know, one, my job... <laughs> Sorry, thank you. No, no, no question. My job, of course, is to make sure that you don't walk out of here thinking, I've heard this a thousand times before. That's my job. Um, I think that's an aspect that needs to be explored. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth and wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. This is really interesting. Henry Nowen, of course, uh, it's in, you know Tim Keller... This is the sort of paradigmatic tale that uh, has meant so much to him in the ministry in New York City. Henry Nowen, captivated by Rembrandt's painting of the prodigal son, writing a book about it, talking a lot about this parable. Uh, And Henry Nowen zeroes in on the idea of lostness, particularly developing the thought of addiction and how this person in the far country experiences the depths of lostness. The world is an inviting place, but it's also a place that screws you. It takes over. It rapes you, now and would talk about the extent at which the lostness comes out in that far country. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. Now, the desolation that is being talked about here, you know, one of the things we struggle with in parables is to uh, the correspondences. What do you read into the parable? And in the early church, medieval church, for, for sure, there was a strong emphasis on allegorizing, kind of finding meaning behind everything that's mentioned in the parable. Uh, I think it's probably safer to look at the parables not as allegories, but as analogies, uh, setting up a story to make you think about the realities of life. Uh, Snodgrass would call this, he's a leading scholar in the parables, that this is a double indirect parable. Uh, so both the, the subject and the person need to be renegotiated in a different light in order to understand it. So I don't read anything into the particulars of the desolation other than the fact that it is a shocking kind of uh, declension, degradation uh, that this young man experiences in the far country. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. So we can't describe something lower than this is what Jesus' point in the parable is. 
And when he came to his senses, now, I mean, you, you try to unpack that. When he came to his senses, um, we probably could spend a lot of time talking about the grace of God that's built into our very being, made in the image of God. He said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I'm starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. And there's something very kind of gratifying about this, isn't it? He's playing out. He's writing the script. He's thinking through the drama. What am I going to say? How am I going to say it? Verse 19, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. He's got it worked out. His way back in. I don't think in any way it's disingenuous. He'd rather be a servant now in his father's house than a son because of what he's done. So he got up and went to his father, but while he was still a long way off, the father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son and threw his arms around him and kissed him. Now, can you... Can you hear this parable without thinking of your father or your parent? Uh, I don't know if any of us really can. I think our mind goes to our own fathers. Craig Barnes is the president of Princeton Seminary. I was in a covenant group with him for 10 years, along with Peter Barnes, who's not related. Uh, a group of pastors, uh, mainline pastors in the PCUSA, and uh, he tells an interesting story about his father. His father was a pastor and had an affair, left the family, abandoned the family, and basically never lasted in any place in America longer than a year, lived in trailer parks. No contact with Craig or his brother, Gary. Gary teaches at Dallas Theological Seminary. They must have interesting conversations between Princeton and Dallas Seminary. But um, no contact whatsoever for a good decade. And then Peter Barnes, another member of the group, but by Barnes but not related to, um, to Craig, got a phone call. Somebody by the name of Cliff Barnes had died and had shared that... Uh, that his son was a pastor in Colorado somewhere. And so trailer park people were trying to track down the family of Cliff Barnes. And they called Peter Barnes, Colorado pastor, but unrelated. But Peter picked up on it. Well, this must be Craig's father. Called Craig, and yes, was in both uh both Gary and Craig uh, flew to Florida, where the trailer park was. Uh, the trailer park had gotten a, a pastor to officiate at the service. And uh, Craig spoke a bit. Uh, Cliff or Gary said that he, he wouldn't speak, but then he did speak, and he just sobbed. They found in the trailer where uh, Cliff lived a prayer journal, and at the top of the list 
was Craig and Gary to pray for. Now, that doesn't mean much to us in the light of um, Cliff's life, uh, but it meant a lot to Craig and to Gary. Just that although the father had abandoned them, never made contact with them, still it would seem that he was praying for them. You can't look at this without also thinking about prodigal fathers. There's not only prodigal sons, but prodigal sons who don't come to their senses and who don't repent become prodigal fathers. It's an interesting dynamic, isn't it? This story is very, in a sense, satisfying in the... um, in the way that it's developed, in the way it brings resolution, the father and son reunion, uh, the embrace of the father, throwing Middle Eastern custom. But I think, you know, this, this father doesn't fit any stereotype. It doesn't fit Manhattan any more than he would fit the Middle East. Um, and he runs, and you know the long robes. And Keller makes much of this that, you know, fathers didn't run. Mothers ran, but fathers don't run. But here he's almost acting more like a mother in his embrace of um, the prodigal who's left. And you have that kind of scene in your mind. And this is what Rembrandt sought to capture with both hands like that. Uh, placed on the back of the the prodigal. Um, The son said, verse 21, the son says to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe, put it on him. You see how enticing this would be for medieval pastors to sort of make something of the robe, (laughs) make something of the ring. These were all symbols of something. And it's not. Uh, I think it's just uh, the cultural perspective of complete acceptance. The best robe, put it on him. Put a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. And this is the connecting link with the, the lost coin, the lost sheep. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And so they began to celebrate. Several years ago, my favorite uncle on my mother's side uh, died in his 80s. Uh, full life, a good life, died of congenitive heart failure um, his last 20 years, um, he took early retirement. He devoted to young people and uh, always a favorite uncle of mine because of his ability to sort of draw you out and to make you feel very accepted. And he loved young people at Racine Bible Church in Wisconsin. And, uh, you know, just had a big impact. And at his memorial service, Somehow, I think we were in Milwaukee when we heard that he died, and we rented a car and drove to Racine. Um, is that the story? Uh, we were in, in Ann Arbor. In, in oh, okay. Thank you. 
Um, if anybody fact-checked my life, I would have mistakes every day. Uh, we were in Ann Arbor. Got, a, got in the car and drove to Racine in time for the memorial service. Uh, I gave a psalm at the outset. And then there were uh, uh, probably ten young people, both of family, grandkids, as well as non-family that spoke. And boy, did they share the gospel. And you could hear a pin drop because there were hundreds there, many of them young, many of them teenagers. And it was just a, it was a wonderful memorial service until the pastor got up. So I've told this story many times now to my seminarians. Uh, and he acted as if nothing had been said. You know, the gospel had been rendered beautifully, I felt. And you could just feel the restlessness move through the young people. Uh, and had sort of like, well, now the pastor is speaking. And it's my job to give you the gospel. I think he actually said that line. And his text was Luke 15, the parable of the prodigal son. And, you know, I, I wondered what he was going to do with this because he was kind of in a bind, I felt, right from the outset. Uh, and sure enough, he said, well, Paul Hummerson at some point must have been like a pro like he was lost. It must have been like the prodigal son. I tell you that story because in his imagination, the only place to fit this story and to identify with it is with the lostness of the prodigal. And I think that early on when I was growing up and heard sermons on the prodigal son, it was all the prodigal son. That was the orientation of the story. That's who you were supposed to identify with. You're lost and you need Christ. Come to Jesus. Then, listening to Keller, uh, it's not the prodigal son you identify with. It is who? The elder brother. We haven't read that yet, but you know it. Um, it's the elder brother who's self-righteous and has played the party line all along, but doesn't really appreciate the father's love and hasn't been grasped by that. And, uh, and that's Keller's orientation. Uh, Keller's always under... Tim Keller, you know, the pastor in New York, I don't mean to be assuming uh, that you're real familiar with Tim Keller, but you've got sort of the problem of religion and the prob problem of secularity and the gospel is middle way between those two because religion isn't the solution and secularism isn't the solution. And that's kind of, that's, and this parable is paradigmatic for that. But the person, there's three people in this story, right? There's the prodigal, there's the elder son, and there's the father. And in that memorial service, Paul Hummerson was a beautiful, physical, live, relational expression of the Father. 
the father's embrace, the father's compassion, the father. You know, and it really opens up the fact that uh, you don't have to paint a picture that everybody fits the prodigal or the elder son resentful. Some of us, because of Jesus Christ and his grace, have become like the compassionate, loving father. This is why this message really preaches well on Father's Day. Now, I know it's not part of the Anglican liturgy, um, but it's, it's a wonderful, powerful message that because of Jesus Christ and his grace, we can be like the compassionate father. Well, that's the punchline. That's kind of the focus. Let's pick it up where we left it off in verse 25. Meanwhile, <laughs> uh, meanwhile, the older son was in the field. And when he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother is coming, replied. And your father has killed the fatted calf because he has him back safe and sound. And the older brother became angry, refused to go in. So again, his father went out and pleaded with him. Now, maybe you don't have a father like this. And so you find yourself kind of turned off by the story. And you say to yourself, well, my father wasn't this way. But your heavenly father is. And that's the shared truth that all of us must embrace. So his father went out and pleaded with him. Our heavenly father is like this. He sent his one and only son. And here's the Christological impact of this story, because the one who's telling us this story is the son who came and is headed to the cross and the power of redemption. And he's telling this story in the light of his heavenly father. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all is telling the story. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you, never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when, and you got to get the, the tone here, right? But when this son of yours, when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fatted calf for him. Uh, he's he's angry. Um, it does recall to my mind a particular uh, family parental dialogue. Uh, my parents were very open uh, to a Chinese Christian fellowship group that met in our home Friday night. Sometimes we'd have 80 Chinese students, and I'm not exaggerating here. Uh, it seemed like the whole house was turned upside down on Friday night and took us a couple hours to put it back together. Um, but my parents were really into this. Um, and I wasn't so much. 
teenager wondering why every space of our house was taken up um, by these uh, strangers. I got into it, but I remember coming home from college and of all Friday nights, you know, I wasn't home for long and I went up to my room and there were two Chinese girls sitting cross-legged on my bed talking to each other. <laughs> and I just, I turned around, walked out of the house, and went for a really long walk. Now, I've repented of this. Um, and I look back now with a great deal of sort of um, satisfaction that my parents were that outgoing. and. My parents ended up kind of being the parents for a number of weddings of these Chinese students that came and fell in love and, and got married in, in Buffalo, New York. And, um, and I ended up spending my first year of teaching in Taiwan, uh, eight months um, teaching at Zhongyan, Ligongxian, a Chinese engineering college. I taught the Gospel of John and um, had Bible studies and Western uh, world religions and uh, Christian apologetics, a long eight months. Uh, we were engaged, and it just, this was before email. Um, you'd wait for a month to get a letter from Virginia. <laughs> and then once I got, you know, a stack of 10, I don't know, somebody was storing them somewhere. Um, but uh, so, you know, I've repented of that, and I think I've been forgiven. And uh, But you can feel the elder son's anger. Verse 31, My son, the father said, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad, because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Don't you wish the story would continue? Like, what did he say? What was his reaction? How long did it take? Because I imagine he came around. Um, and it does acknowledge, I remember Carl Armitting, the president of Wheaton College, making the point as he went through this uh, parable that the younger son had lost. He'd lost a significant portion of his inheritance. He's not getting that back. There is a deficit. Wandering in the far country had its cost. And the elder son, you know, he's got everything. Uh, uh, it's an unending, unended story. But such a powerful description of the gospel. I want you to go away with a sense of the fact that there are three people to identify with that we need to work through by the grace of God. Some of us are prodigals. We know what that's like. We've been there. We've done that. And by the grace of God, we've come home to the embrace of the Father. And we can never get over the fact that the Father would be that loving when we were so rebellious. And then some of us are like the resentful older son. Uh, 
we took a long time to come to grips with religion uh, being a substitute for a true reception of the gospel of grace. We've played a game. We've done what was expected of us. But our heart hasn't been in it. And we really haven't known the embrace of the Father. Not because the Father hasn't been there, but because we have not received it. But we can also be like the compassionate Father. That by the grace of God, by the power of the gospel, we too can be like him. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. The line from the Sermon on the Mount. You know, I wonder if that was in Luke's mind as he wrote this parable. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Let's pray. Lord God, thanks for your goodness to us, for speaking to us of your love and giving us this, this story, the epic gospel with an intimate understanding. Uh, together we praise you. Help us, because we can all think of prodigals, who need to come home. Help us not to write the last chapter on them. And Lord, uh, we can all think of times when we've been somewhat resentful and uh, unresponsive to your grace because we think we're working hard for you. And Lord, help us to see that the real model here is you. And help us to be more conformed to your image as time goes on because of your grace. In the name of Christ, we pray together. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.